Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. No one, including the most bullish supporters of Ukraine, expect the nation's war with Russia to end soon. The fighting has been reduced to artillery duels across hundreds of miles of front lines and creeping advances and retreats. Ukraine, like Afghanistan, will bleed for a very long time. And this is by design. The militarists who have waged permanent war costing trillions of dollars over the past two decades have invested heavily in controlling the public narrative. The enemy, whether Saddam Hussein or Vladimir Putin, is always the epitome of evil, the new Hitler. Those we support are always heroic defenders of liberty and democracy. Anyone who questions the righteousness of the cause is accused of being an agent of a foreign power and a traitor. The mass media cravenly disseminates these binary absurdities in 24-hour news cycles. Its news celebrities and experts, universally drawn from the intelligence community and the military, rarely deviate from the approved script. Day and night, the drums of war never stop beating. Its goal? To keep billions of dollars flowing into the hands of the war industry and prevent the public from asking inconvenient questions. Medea Benjamin, who along with Nicholas Davies authored War in Ukraine Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict, placed the war in Ukraine in its proper historical and cultural context warning that a protracted war in Ukraine threatens open warfare between the United States and Russia, a nuclear Armageddon. Joining me to discuss her book is Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink and author of Drone Warfare, Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connection and Inside Iran. So in the book, Medea, you uh, begin first by setting... uh, the Ukrainian historical context, uh, and in particular, the Russian-speaking regions. Just just lay out for us, uh, because I think there is this kind of perception that uh, Ukraine uh, or, or Russia's interest uh, or claims over Ukraine are somehow new. I think people don't understand how close Ukraine and Russia have been Uh, for centuries, how many Russian speakers there are in Ukraine, how the uh, connection between Ukraine and Russia has gone back and forth for a long time, but uh, Ukraine was part of the uh, Soviet Union. And uh, places like Crimea, uh, people in Russia have told me that uh, the Americans might think of uh, the, um, the state of Alaska uh, that's how people in Russia see Ukraine as a part of their country for a long time. Uh, and it's really recently that there has been this discrimination against Russian speakers, against Russian publications, against using Russian language in the schools. And of course, that is part of the conflict that we have seen raging in the last decade. Well, with this caveat that uh, the Crimea was part of Russia a century before we got Alaska, wasn't it? That's right. And the uh, uh, I think just the idea that anyone would say that Crimea is not part of Russia 
um, for the people in Ukraine now calling for all of Crimea to be taken back and the way the U.S. media is portraying it as part of this fight right now is to get uh, Crimea back into Russia. I think people should uh, think of how it would feel if a hostile power in Canada, for example, decided that Alaska would no longer be part of the United States. Let's talk a little bit about the antecedents to the conflict. I was in Eastern Europe in 1989. I covered the revolutions in East Germany, Czechoslovakia, and Romania. I was there when promises were made to Gorbachev, who, by the way, wanted to build a security and economic alliance with Europe and the United States. Uh, but promises were made not to expand NATO beyond the border of a unified Germany. This is a historical fact. It's one I reported. Uh, and yet to even bring this up uh, is an anathema among the media. So before we talk about what happened in 2014, let's talk a little bit about what happened between 1989 and 2014. Well, in terms of the NATO expansion, as you said, um, people are today are trying to act like that promise was never made because it wasn't written down in some kind of treaty. But we do have evidence from all kinds of U.S. politicians, academics, diplomats, uh, saying that this was just common knowledge, that it was part of a deal uh, brokered between Secretary of State James Baker and uh, Gorbachev, and how uh, this was part of the um, uh, agreement around the reunification of Germany. Uh, it's also important to note that uh, the Warsaw Pact uh, was dissolved after the downfall of the Soviet Union. And it was at that time that many thought that that would be the end of NATO, that NATO had done its job protecting the West from the Soviet Union. And yet these promises were violated by uh, Democratic presidents like Clinton, uh, Republican presidents like George Bush. In fact, it was at that 2008 meeting of NATO in uh, Budapest where uh, George Bush twisted the arms of other leaders uh, in NATO to say that we would promise membership to Georgia and to Ukraine against the, uh, the uh, best uh, interests of the region and against many of the other NATO members that knew uh, that that would be tremendously problematic, which is why they agreed to make the announcement, but not to set a date. And then as uh, progressive from there, uh, the continuous UX expansions that not only went eastward, but went right to Russia's border are somehow disregarded today. But it is important to try to uh, imagine what it would be like in the United States if a hostile force, let's say in Mexico or in Canada, uh, were building bases right on our borders. And uh, the NATO expansion was also accompanied by uh, the redesign of NATO, not to be a, a defensive alliance, but to be an offensive one. We saw that in Yugoslavia. Uh, and then we saw it far from the North Atlantic countries when NATO got involved in the invasion of Afghanistan, in the invasion of Libya, and uh, not in the beginning, but later on in the U.S. occupation of Iraq as well. So Russia was seeing not only the uh, movement of NATO 
towards its borders, uh, but it also saw the increasingly aggressive nature of NATO itself. And it's despite this, uh, Putin in the beginning cooperated with in the so-called war on terror. Of course, they had had problems with Islamic extremism after the wars in Chechnya. Uh, Russia provided resupply routes for U.S. troops in Afghanistan. There was a real effort on the part of the Russian government to reach out. Well, yes, and that has been the case even in more recent times when uh, Russia worked with the United States, for example, to get an agreement on the Iran nuclear deal. When Russia worked with the United States around Syria, uh, to try to uh, uh, solve this um, uh, crisis around Syrian uh, uh, biological weapons. Um, I think there are many examples that we can point to today of Russia working with the United States, which is one of the reasons why it's so um, it, it, ridiculous to hear this uh, common phrase that you can't negotiate with Putin. You can't negotiate with Russia. The U.S. has been doing it for quite a long time. What do you think is driving the hostility towards or what drove it? I'm not defending, of course, the war in Ukraine, as you don't either. Preemptive war is a war crime. Uh, uh, but what drove that hostility? Uh, Andrew Basevich argues that it was just the hubris of a broken Soviet empire and a weakened Russia. I've got to believe that the billions in profits that were made, uh, are being made by the war industry, uh, by refitting Warsaw Pact countries with NATO equipment was also a factor. But what, what do you uh, believe drove this uh, hostility? Well, I think there are many factors behind it, and you named some of it. We also have, within the Democratic Party, uh, the last years of the demonization of Russia around Russiagate, instead of admitting that Hillary Clinton was a bad candidate, uh, blaming uh, the Russians on the victory of Donald Trump. Uh, the um, war, both, uh, we know that we have two war parties. I think the Republicans are more focused on China as the adversary and the Democrats more focused on Russia. But in any case, we have this um, growing militarization that has taken over uh, NATO, but a militarization of Ukraine by the U.S. And even under uh, Obama, we see that right after, after the Minsk agreement was signed and there was supposed to be some uh, peaceful solution to the conflict in the Donbass, uh, you see him sending weapons to Ukraine, supposedly defensive weapons. Uh, and now, of course, all of that a charade of defensive versus offensive have been lifted, uh, but it has been both Democrats and Republicans who have really uh, pushed for uh, increased hostility towards Russia, uh, increased militarization of Europe. And this is also a way to get Europe totally behind the United States, whereas I think with the Europeans like the Germans uh, and many other European countries becoming so dependent on Russia for their energy supplies, um, the U.S. was trying to find a way to sever the ties between Western Europe and Russia and make sure that Western Europe was solidly behind the United States. And this uh, terrible invasion by Putin has given them exactly what the U.S. wanted. 
Let's talk about the Minsk, agree- Minsk agreement. This was an agreement uh, that the U- Ukraine never honored. Uh, explain what it was and what it was meant to do. When the um, Maidan protests began and they uh, were overtaken by violent protests uh, and a, a government that was corrupt, but uh, an elected government was overthrown, there was the uh, protest that happened in the Donbass and the uh, a civil war broke out between uh, the supporters of Russia inside the Donbass and the opponents, many of them hard right elements that had uh, neo-Nazi origins like the Asov Brigade. Uh, and uh, the uh, European security organization sent in monitors after an agreement was reached that there would be uh, greater autonomy given to Donbass, that there would be elections there, uh, that there would be talks between the leaders of the breakaway republics and the uh, heads of state in, in Ukraine. Uh, that political part never happened. What happened was that the uh, monitors did indeed come in, c- come in, and many of the uh, explosions of the conflict, of the, the killing that happened in the first year was calmed down by the presence of these monitors, uh, but the political agreement was never implemented. Uh, there was never an election uh, that was held. There were never the talks with the leaders of the breakaway republics. And every time one of the leaders in Ukraine tried to uh, go ahead and implement the process, they were threatened by the extreme right. And this is true when Zelensky came in, having come to power on a popular agenda of creating peace in the Ukraine, of implementing these Minsk Accords, uh, then he was threatened, his life was threatened uh, by the extreme right, saying that they would hang him from a tree if indeed he went ahead with this. Uh, so the political elements of Minsk II were never implemented, but they actually did form the basis of what could have been and still could be a solution to the conflict in the Donbass. Well, we should be clear, when Zelensky ran, he made uh, quite a fact, the fact that they, or he brought up the fact that he was a Russian speaker, uh, which was seen as an asset. Let's go back 2014, Victoria Nuland. Uh, I think the U.S. put, what, $5 million. Ex- explain what happened. Uh, many, uh, you know, Russian, Russian speakers in Ukraine argue this was a coup. Um, uh, and I think there's much validity of that, but, but, but explain, and, and also the intrusion of the United States into the domestic politics of Ukraine, something the Soviet experts like George Kennan, even Burns, argued was dangerous. Absolutely. When you saw the protests that broke out against a, an unpopular and corrupt government, uh, that was, uh, talking to both the Europeans about joining the European Union as well as joining a, an economic pact with, the, uh, uh, with Russia, uh, the, there were segments of the population that rose up and said, uh, we want to be pro-Western. Uh, we don't want these ties with Russia. And they started a peaceful protest. And that gathered steam and gathered steam and was overtaken by uh, violent, uh, extreme right elements. Now, they, uh, 
there was there were talks going on between the Ukrainian leadership, the government in power, and the European countries to say, how can we come up with a solution to this? And they uh, planned on having new elections. Uh, this was not good enough for uh, those right-wing elements, and they decided that they were going to continue to escalate, uh, and they took over the building in Parliament. Uh, they um, forced... Uh, uh, the uh, government in power out, and they uh, started this uh, um, violent, the violent actions in in reaction to the breakaway republics in the Donbas. Uh, so Victoria Newland was the assistant secretary of state at the time, and she uh, was directly involved in trying to engineer what would be the outcome of these protests, who would be in charge. It's quite astounding that we have that audio tape of her talking to the U.S. ambassador in Ukraine about how they were going to disregard, although she didn't use that nice word, she used another word, um, the, uh, the European Union and the person that they wanted to put in power and instead put in who the U.S. had wanted to put. Um, we have a, a video that we did uh, to accompany our book, Chris, in which we show her uh, out in the Maidan giving out uh, sweets to the protesters, uh, but her role in this uh, was not very sweet. And I think in years to come, just as we've seen uh, the National Security Archives and other groups get um, documents long after the fact about U.S. involvement in coups in other countries around the world, um, we have yet to see the extent of the U.S. involvement. But we know that the National Endowment for Democracy we know that the U.S. State Department was heavily involved in promoting the protests uh, and heavily involved in deciding who exactly would come to power. I want to go back to the Azov Battalion and these neo-fascist elements uh, because there's a strong fascist tradition in Ukraine going back to World War Two, this was also true, of course, when I lived in Croatia with the Ustasha. Uh, but explain that. And then after the fall of communism, you saw the resurrection of these uh, fascistic or fascist-allied uh, movements. They kind of sprouted back up out of the soil. Well, that's right. And there were several different uh, uh, branches of them, and they also had their political party. Uh, which at one point in 2016, I think they got about 10% of the electorate. And then uh, in the elections after that got a, a much smaller amount. And so people say, well, uh, they're not important because they uh, have no significant power when it comes to uh, the elected government. But that's not where their power lies. Their power lies in the paramilitary groups and the armed elements and the ones who uh, refuse to allow uh, the Minsk Accords to be implemented and the ones that have been uh, fighting and killing many people in the Donbass. Uh, they are the ones who have the power. They are the ones right now uh, that are stopping Zelensky from uh, negotiating uh, as he tried to do early on uh, because he has gotten threatened when he talked about a compromise uh, that would include uh, the uh, the uh, some autonomy for those breakaway republics and 
uh, they pushed back and said, no, we want every inch of Donbass to go back to Ukraine. So their power has been uh, in the uh, military, and that's why uh, there were years ago, um, there were elements in the U.S. government, like Rokana, who tried to stop U.S. weapons from getting into the hands of the Azov Battalion uh, because of their human rights abuses, because of their Nazi ties. Uh, and yet, uh, after the invasion of Russia, that has all been swept away and the weapons are just pouring in. And we have no idea who is getting those weapons. We have no idea how much this is empowering, uh, not only the uh, neo-Nazi elements in Ukraine, but a similar right-wing fascists who have come in to join in the fight from many places around the world. And just like we see the pouring in of U.S. weapons in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, what it led to, the creation of groups like ISIS, uh, I fear that in the future, uh, and let's hope we don't go towards nuclear war, uh, but in the future, uh, we will see the tremendous empowerment of these groups with so many of the weapons that the U.S. has sent in. And I think uh, I'm right when I say the estimate is there are hundreds of internationals who have uh, joined the Azov Battalion. Is that correct? Well, that's right. And when we talk about all of the weapons that are going into their hands, uh, let's remember that there have uh, the, the CBS report uh, that talked about perhaps only 30% of the weapons that the U.S. is sending uh, getting into the hands of the uh, Ukrainian fighters and that so many of them were on the black market. And imagine who is uh, getting so many of those weapons. It's going to be right-wing extremists that have come in to Ukraine to take advantage of this situation. So it, after what's called the coup of 2014, but certainly the installation of an anti-Russian government, uh, you also saw NATO become very heavily involved uh, in Ukraine. Although Ukraine is not a NATO country, in many ways it became a de facto NATO country. I wondered if you could discuss that. Well, it's interesting that Zelensky himself, when he recently uh, made his fast track application for NATO, said as much. He said, we are a de facto member of NATO and we'd like to be a de jure, uh, i.e. a legal member of NATO. And when you look at uh, how, at, starting in 2015, uh, the U.S., the West, NATO uh, poured in uh, weapons and trainers and trained 10,000 Ukrainian troops every single year. Uh, Chris, when the Russians invaded and the Western press said that they were going to crush the Ukrainians, um, many people did not realize that about 100,000 Ukrainian, Ukrainian troops had already been uh, trained and equipped by NATO. So uh, certainly there was a lot of preparation uh, that led up to the kind of resistance that we're seeing today. And uh, the fact that the U.S. Has, is using its intelligence uh, to uh, help the Ukrainians with their targets. So its weapons, its training, its intelligence. I mean, how much more do you need to say that the U.S. is involved and that NATO is involved in, in this war? Uh, it's kind of a charade to say that we don't have troops on the ground, so this is not a proxy war. This is not a direct involvement. 
Um, but you have a lot of CIA agents on the ground. Uh, you have trainers. And uh, I think very much for uh, Russia, it is definitely a war uh, with the U.S., with NATO, and with Ukraine. Why such staggering sums of money of over $50 billion, the State Department budget is, I think, about $60 billion or uh, the requests for 2023. Uh, I mean, it is just an uh, uh, eye-popping sum of money with, and the spigot's been turned on. There's kind of no end in sight. Can you talk about the, the cost of the war to the U.S. taxpayer? Well, it is absolutely staggering, Chris, and I think the U.S. taxpayer has no inkling uh, that this is happening. On the one hand, uh, you have the justification for increasing the Pentagon budget itself now to over $800 billion when there should have been a, quote, peace dividend now that the U.S. is no longer in Afghanistan. Uh, But the war in Ukraine was used to justify this tremendous increase in the Pentagon budget. But the Ukraine money and it, including the military budget for Ukraine, is separate from the Pentagon budget. So it's on top of that. And yes, we saw that astounding vote for $40 billion. I mean, we can all imagine all kinds of things that we could be doing in this country with $40 billion. Uh, and th- there was not a peep from a Democrat when that vote happened. Uh, more recently, there's been another $13 billion, and the year isn't even over yet. Um, you compare this to the budget of the State Department. I've heard many people in the environmental movement, particularly in other countries, comparing it to what they see as the existential crisis for the planet of the environment and saying that there was this uh, global climate fund that was supposed to be funded a decade ago uh, for $100 billion. They never got more than $10 billion. Uh, and if you count all the money that all the Western countries and the U.S., have put into Ukraine, it's about $100 billion right now. So yes, these are astounding sums of money. Uh, the spigot is still on, and we are having a hard time even getting progressive Democrats to start questioning this. You might remember that Senator Rand Paul uh, did question the money and saying uh, there is no uh, setup for any accountability of how this money is going to be used. Uh, and that was pushed aside by people in his own party, as well as the Democrats saying, oh, come on, you know, uh, don't rain on our parade. Uh, And the Democrats and Republican leadership have been falling over themselves to say, um, it's not enough money, we have to increase it. Uh, And meanwhile, the American public, when it comes to the elections, their greatest concern is around inflation. Uh, And yet the mainstream media has not made the connection between this war in Ukraine the inflation that the American people are facing, and who is responsible for this uh, in the White House and in the Congress? Well, I think the the head of uh, NATO, uh, head of the IMF, have all warned of social unrest this winter as fuel prices skyrocket. Uh, Saudi Arabia, which you know well, has just proven which side they're on. Um, uh, but the, the feeling is you have to, we have to endure the cost. Uh, I can't remember who you quote in the book, but somebody said, well, that's the price of liberty and freedom or, but, but there's a kind of, uh, uh, blindness to the social cost of what's happening. Can you, can you address that? Yes, absolutely. I feel that the entire world is being affected by this war 
in so many different ways. One is by the uh, difficulties of getting the grain out from both Ukraine and Russia and the fertilizers from Russia that have affected uh, the global hunger crisis uh, and have increased food prices everywhere. Uh, we have the issue of the climate where this war and the sanctions on Russia has actually led to the use of more dirty energy, whether it's more exploration for oil and gas, uh, more use of coal, uh, the stopping the decommissioning of nuclear plants. Uh, it's been disastrous for the environment. Uh, and um, the, uh, the, the increase in militarization, we talked about the increased budget in the United States, but this is happening uh, in all of the NATO countries. It's happening in Russia. It's happening in China. And this has a terrible effect on uh, people around the world as well, because it's money that should be used for other causes. It strengthens the hardliners in all of our countries. It strengthens NATO. So there are so many negative effects of this war. And uh, that's why I think it's so important that we, the public, get involved, uh, get the kind of information we really need to see how our government has actually been thwarting efforts at negotiations, uh, how the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, refuses to talk to his counterpart in Russia, how uh, Biden refuses to talk to Putin, and uh, how this is just leading us into an endless crisis that uh, could lead to nuclear war, and even if it doesn't lead to nuclear war, has all these other consequences that I just mentioned that are disastrous for the world. Well, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, I think uh, Kennedy spoke to Khrushchev almost daily, uh, which presented, prevented a kind of uh, nuclear uh, incident. Uh, how worried are you about where we're headed? I mean, the rhetoric has been ramped up. You have the pimps of war, the Elliot Abrams and the Robert Kagans and others assuring us that uh, Russia will never use nuclear weapons, including tactical nuclear weapons. I've covered war long enough to tell you that once you open that Pandora's box, you don't control it. No one controls it. Uh, if this conflict continues, what do you see happening? Well, I certainly see the real possibility of nuclear war, and it terrifies me, which is why I'm going on a 50-city tour, organizing, getting people active. But I find, Chris, that while older people understand the threat of a nuclear war and are terrified about it, uh, it's something that younger people really don't understand. It doesn't resonate with them. They don't have the history that some of us have of hiding under our desks. Right, right. Um, but uh, what they resonates with them is the climate crisis. And uh, so I've been talking more about the connections of uh, this war and the climate issues. Uh, but I think that um, both of them and the fact that uh, the President Biden just talked to, at one of his uh, fundraisers at the home of the Murdoch family uh, about the possibility of a, a nuclear Armageddon uh, is... <laughs> just um, the first time that he's really uh, mentioned this as a real possibility. And I don't think uh, that those in the uh, U.S. Uh, leadership are taking it seriously enough. Many of them say he's only bluffing. But, you know, Chris, it's odd because they, some of them say, well, Putin's a madman. Well, if he's a madman, wouldn't you really want to make sure that you have some negotiations going on so he doesn't use nu nuclear weapons. 
And when you bring up the Cuban Missile Crisis, I think we have to go back and recognize what John F. Kennedy said, which is you don't push a powerful nation into a position where they have to uh, choose between a humiliating defeat and the use of nuclear weapons. And that is exactly what Biden is doing today, cornering Putin, trying to uh, humiliate him into a, a defeat that would uh, uh, hopefully, according to the U.S. government, uh, mean his demise. Uh, and yet when you corner the leader of a powerful nuclear nation, uh, you are courting just uh, Armageddon. Well, Henry Kissinger gave the same warning. It pains me to be on the same side as Kissinger. Uh, but he he said exactly the same thing. That's right. And he asked, where is this headed? And I think that is a question we have never heard Biden answer. Where do they hope this is going to go? Is it really realistic to think that Ukraine can, quote, win this war by taking back every inch of territory? Absolutely not. Uh, what does it mean to weaken Russia? Uh, do they want to see Putin leave? Well, who do they think is going to take over? Somebody perhaps more extreme? Uh, so I would like uh, more questioning publicly of Biden about where he thinks this is going to end, because we have never heard any rational discourse about what the U.S. government thinks can be the end game of this. That was Medea Benjamin, co-author of War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrishedges.substack.com. 